0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of your hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very pleased today because we get to talk to Dr. Sarah Diefendorf about her book titled The Holy Vote, Inequality and Anxiety Among White Evangelicals, published by the University of California Press in 2023. This book does the deep dive that I think so many headlines so many news stories could do maybe should do but don't thankfully sarah has done intensive ethnographic fieldwork at an evangelical megachurch to figure out what's going on behind those doors what are people thinking how are they navigating all of the various conversations happening in many countries but especially in the united states around feminism gender, race, homosexuality, and much more. So Sarah, thank you so much for coming onto the podcast to tell us about your book.
0: Miranda, thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here.
1: I'm thrilled to have you. And could we start off, please, with you introducing yourself a little bit and explaining why you decided to write this book?
0: Absolutely. Uh, So my name is Dr. Sarah Diefendorf. I am a visiting scholar at Indiana University. And I decided to write this book because um, in around 2009, 2010, I started researching evangelical men. And I was really curious about evangelical men who had pledged sexual abstinence before marriage. Um, And I conducted the first longitudinal qualitative study uh, to to understand how these young men navigated these pledges of sexual abstinence before marriage and then really importantly what happened once they got married <laughs> uh, what what were they kind of dealing with and navigating once they were um, able to in uh, engage in sexual activity within the the context of married life. Um, that research, however, in many ways left me with more questions than it did uh, answers. Um, and I've always been very curious about the ways in which evangelical men and women navigate a whole host of questions around sex and sexuality over the life course. Um, especially after marriage, because that's such a big moment for evangelical men and women. Um, So I wanted to continue this line of work. Um, I wanted to go back to an evangelical megachurch and keep asking these questions around sex and sexuality.
1: Well, having read the book, I can see kind of where that impetus came from and then what else you discovered um, while asking those questions. So could you tell us a bit about sort of how this project expanded from that initial Goal to kind of what it became. Absolutely. So in my previous work that I
0: just mentioned, um, the the men that I interviewed uh, understood and talked about sex as either sacred or beastly, and they joined small groups to support each other in um, kind of navigating and avoiding the beastly aspects of sex and sh- sexuality. So that they can enjoy the sacred uh, gift of sex in marriage. Um, And oftentimes, uh, being gay, uh, same sex attraction, same sex. Marriage were parts of these beastly aspects of sex and sexuality. And when I was doing my first round of research, uh, this was right after um, kind of Prop 8 in the state of California, Um, but it was well before the federal legalization of same sex marriage in the United States. Um, And and so then kind of fast forward to June 2015, right? We had the legal, uh, the federal legalization of same sex marriage in the United States. And I was very curious to know kind of what this federal legalization would mean uh, for individuals in the church who had long Understood, kind of their own sense of sex and sexuality uh, against (laughs) uh, kind of the category of homosexuality, if you will. Um, And I was also really curious about what this federal legalization would mean um, for kind of church fights. Like, what was the evangelical mega church, kind of writ large, going to going to fight for kind of culturally next? um, Now that they had they kind of lost this fight, Um, and so I wanted to document this next fight um, for white evangelicals of related to sexuality and gender. I, I thought I was going to write a book about pornography <laughs> um, and, and I began this field work and then you know Donald Trump was elected the first fall that I was in the field um, but what I show in this book is that fights about gender and sexuality and race right and the white family protections around the white family um, are intimately tied to this ongoing relationship between uh, white evangelical, the white evangelical voting block uh, support for conservative politicians in the U.S. Uh, so, in many ways, kind of my initial research questions around uh, ideas and understandings related to sex, sexuality, gender for evangelicals was related to the book I ended up writing. But it was kind of ended up being one of many questions uh, that that I asked while I was in the field.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, all projects evolve, um, but it's always helpful to kind of hear someone's experience um, of how that progression happens. And of course, to then, you know, in some ways, it also gives us a bunch of things to then pick up in the rest of our discussion. So lovely start. Thank you. The other kind of foundational aspect I think we probably should cover is an idea that you discuss at the beginning of the book, but really it comes up kind of throughout all the rest of it as well, and is maybe not something uh, that many of us in the secular world really think that much about. So can you tell us what you mean by the phrase imagined secular? And Give us an overview of the role it plays in the megachurch so that we can then kind of go into a bit more detail on particular topics.
0: Absolutely. Thanks, Brenda. That's a great question. And and as you said, will help us discuss the rest of the book. Um, So I'm I'm going to back up just a little bit here and provide some additional context uh, for... Um, this kind of concept that really orients the entire book. So The Holy Vote, uh, it really tried to tell a story about how white evangelicals at this megachurch that I call Lakeview, um, like similar kind of religious organizations across the country, are working to figure out kind of what they're for and also what they're against. Um, And importantly, Lakeview Church exists in one of the most progressive states in the United States um, among kind of what we call the coastal elites, right? And not far from one of the cities with the highest numbers of atheists uh, in the nation. Um, And so this is not necessarily a place that we would think of as a stronghold uh, for kind of evangelical life or white Christian nationalists. Um, And that's precisely why I studied this group and wanted to um, get in at this church. And so evangelicals at Lakeview are working to disentangle what they support uh, from what they fear, right? And what those beliefs mean for the church that they love. Um, And I show how these beliefs um, that they're trying to hold on to, uh, some that they're trying to let go of, uh, some they're seeking kind of more understanding around, um, how this also relates to their continued support for conservative politics in the U.S. and really our understandings of um, American life. Um, So folks at Lakeview have a really strong desire to be welcoming, uh, to be ready for growth, right? This is really important. They talked at length about how their kids are not coming to church anymore, right? We're seeing declines among kind of older millennials and now the group we know of as Gen Z. Um, But the efforts towards inclusion, this idea to be welcoming, um, are always going to be hindered kind of by these abstract categories that evangelicals at Lakeview rely on to understand others outside of their own church walls. And, and so to get at these kind of ideas and this interplay between exclusion and inclusion, I introduced this concept of the imagined secular um, and so, this is a bundled set of issues or threats uh, to which most of uh, the evangelicals at Lakeview are, at least in theory, opposed. Um, and the, the Lakeview community understands that they need to actively address these threats, right? So, this imagined other helps define and set the terms and really the symbolic boundaries for their current debates. And so, as each chapter of my book outlines, Anything that's perceived to question the normalness, and I'm using kind of scare quotes there, um, or assumed kind of inherent goodness um, about gender essentialism, heterosexuality, whiteness, um, and Christianity, really, um, is a threat that must be managed. So folks at Lakeview are talking about feminism, they're talking about trans rights, they're talking about reproductive justice, they're talking about what they call kind of deviant sexuality, they're talking about the Black Lives Matter movement. Mm -hmm. Um, And and this was surprising to me, right, when I entered the field, Um, but this is kind of the content of the imagined secular. And importantly, one aspect of this imagined other can invoke a much larger and overwhelming constellation of debates um, and perceived threats really to white evangelical life. Um, And so for some folks at Lakeview, this leads them to reject the components of the imagined secular entirely. But for many others within their community, the aspects of this imagined secular produce kind of notable variation in debate. Um, and this is kind of the the life and the substance of what church leaders often referred to as the messiness of church life um, and often kind of the ugliness that they were very worried about <laughs> um, if their responses to the imagined secular were not handled in what they understood to be kind of a good and godly way. And, and so I spent two and a half years documenting these conversations. Um, and these conversations occurred among members in small groups, which are really central to evangelical life, especially at a megachurch in which you've got, you know, 1,500, 2,000 members, sometimes 10,000 members attending. Uh, they're openly discuss- These topics are openly discussed by the pastoral team and Sunday sermons. Um, and the content of these debates really identifies, I think, what the church feels like they need to engage with in order to be understood as good. Um, So, for example, in order to not be understood or marked as sexist, the church feels like they need to now talk about feminism in new ways Uh, to avoid the label of racist. Right? They need to talk about and engage with the Black Lives Matter movement. And to no longer be understood as homophobes, the church needs to reconcile uh, its kind of longstanding position in response to the federal legalization of same-sex marriage. And what I highlight in the book is that the church has long been engaged in cultural battles around sexuality, gender, and the white family, right? And none of that is actually new (laughs) and and neither is the idea that a religious group feels like there are external threats um, within the world, right? That they need to both protect themselves from and define themselves kind of in relation to, Um, and in fact, like this language of threats is how folks who study religion often understand religious groups, Right, religious groups or really any social group uh, can provide members with a sense of identity. Right. They give us a sense of meaning, a set of morals to understand ourselves and the world around us. Um, And and an easy way of kind of teaching and thinking about these identities and beliefs and values to a group of people is to show that group of people who they are not. (laughs) Right. It's much easier to understand yourself if you can point to someone else and say, Well, that's not who I am. Um, And and religious groups and white evangelicals in particular can really gain strength and a sense of meaning uh, by engaging in these social conflicts with other groups. And there's a lot of great work in the sociology of religion on this. Um, But what's important, I think, is that these groups can be real, but they can also be imagined. Right. And that part actually doesn't really matter. Uh, But what does matter is that talking about kind of our social world in terms of these threats, um, in terms of things that people are up against, can be very effective at building a sense of internal solidarity for a group. And it can really help a group thrive. So part of this understanding and use of this language of threats is a reflection of the history of the white evangelical movement in the U.S. and its origin, and part of it more generally is just what it means to be part of a group. Um, and, and for white evangelicals, um, I also think, you know, back to this sense of identity, it, it's part of what it means to be American. Um, they want to retain both the authority and privileges that have always come hand in hand with being members of a dominant group in the U.S. And here I mean dominant in terms of racial privileges, class privileges, political power, right? And they don't want to lose that. And so as I trace throughout the book, the white evangelical kind of understandings of family of gender divisions within the family, of understandings of race and evangelical theology and marriage, they're all so deeply intertwined. Um, and they're, they're engaging with the imagined secular, but as they're doing so, we can really trace out how these threats are interconnected. And so they cannot afford to say, for example, like, sure, that's fine for other groups to talk about trans rights, um, because as I show, kind of one threat is connected to all the others. So if they sit back and sit out of <laughs> this dialogue and discourse, their entire project risks unraveling. Um, but, but what is new, (laughs) um, one of the things that is new in this book is that, you know, we need to pay attention to how these threats are formed, uh, how they're understood, how they're navigated that has been understudied. And I think is a really crucial thing that's needed to help understand our current political and cultural moment in the U S. And I think the concept of the imagined secular helps us get at that.
1: No, absolutely. And thank you so much for taking us through it as well. Um, Before we get into some of those topics of kind of the one topic is actually tied to a whole bunch of other things. Is there anything further you want to make sure we understand about kind of the context and the history around white evangelicals in the US? I know you've told us about some of it already, but is there anything you want to add or should we move on?
0: I could write a book on this question alone. Uh, Many people have uh, written fantastic books about this. Uh, Some recommendations for listeners, uh, Anthea Butler's book, Kristen Dume, Gerardo Mardi, Sam Perry, Andrew Whitehead, they all have uh, full books that tackle these questions. Um, I'll just give us some big picture, uh, I think kind of historical highlights that are important uh, today. Um, From the 1950s to the 1970s, this was an especially important time for the creation of the group that we now think of as white evangelicals in the U.S. Uh, This was a time in which white evangelicals identified many things they opposed. And as we discussed earlier, Miranda, right, this is really... uh, this type of opposition is really helpful for group cohesion and uh, and coalition building. Uh, and so we had two back-to-back landmark Supreme Court decisions. So in 1962 and in 1963, the Supreme Court in the US established that school-sponsored prayer in public schools violated the First Amendment. And so did school-sponsored Bible reading in public schools. And there was a ton of media attention around these decisions, right? Focusing on kind of the inflammatory theme of kicking God out of the public school. Uh, In addition, of course, we have the civil rights movement, right? we have the beginning of the gay rights movement, we have Roe v. Wade, we have the Equal Rights Amendment. These all represented unwelcome changes for the white evangelical family. Um, And issues related to family and sexuality proved to be kind of especially uh, key in, in fueling evangelicals' political fights. Um, You know, all of a sudden, it seemed like gender relations, sexuality, questions about premarital sex, right? Race relations, decisions around when and how to have babies suddenly seemed up for debate. Uh, And we saw the evangelical grassroots movement really awaken during this time. And importantly, white evangelicals started creating more institutions uh, in which they could both preach, right, and preserve their values as they felt like the cultural landscape around them shifted. Uh, So we saw a mass increase in kind of the founding and opening of Christian schools. And here I specifically mean white Christian schools, especially in the South. Um, And then as we moved kind of into the late 70s, early 80s, we saw this kind of what scholars call this anti-60s era, right, in which the world was painted as kind of crumbling, decaying, um, and individuals sought clear and firm answers. We saw kind of an increase in turn to cults during this time, to therapy movements, right? People were looking for a clearer orientation and framework to understand this shifting landscape. And, And people also turned to the white evangelical church. In uh, 1979, right, Jerry Falwell established the Moral Majority, and while they experienced some ups and downs um, in this movement over the next decade, um, there was an increasing urge um, for for white evangelicals to vote. Um, so we've got kind of this increase in institutions, this increase in focus on politics, and becoming kind of um, actively engaged in politics. And then a decade after the founding of the Moral Majority, we get the term culture wars printed for the first time. And, and while many of us would look at this kind of short history I just gave um, of white evangelicals in the U.S. as as kind of, you know, anti-feminist, anti-Black, anti-gay, um, and, and perhaps they're foreseen as evidence for the very uh, ugliness that those at Lakeview seem in my time, they were very adamant to avoid. Uh, What I argue in this book is that for white evangelical Christians, this lexicon of the culture wars, name them as powerful, right? They're at war. They're ready to fight. Um, And that mindset mindset carried through to the time I was in the field, beginning with the 2016 election. Right, They fought and they won lots in the US, and they didn't want to lose that power or have it taken away. Uh, when I re-entered the field, right, we're in this period of massive polarization. We've got new social movements challenging the inequalities on which really the pillars of the white evangelical movement rest, right? We've got the emergence of the Black Lives Matter movement. We've got the Me Too movement. We've got women taking to the streets, right? Women's marches in the U.S. and across the globe. Uh, we have the legalization of same-sex marriage. And so the fear um, of losing these fights, of, of being marked kind of as the ugly ones in this fight, um, when they have in many ways become kind of de facto for what it means to be a white American, um, and then their kids aren't coming to church, right? They're they're nervous, they're scared. Um, and so the history of their fights matters, right? It helps us see that these fights and debates are not new. Uh, it helps us understand the fights that they built their movements on. Um, but importantly, it helps us see kind of the emotion that they bring to this the fear. Um, and, and people do a lot when they fear loss of power.
1: Mm. No, very important for exactly those reasons, um, as well as helping us understand the uh, how kind of one issue seems to be related to so many others, that it's um, something that I think is seen a lot, but not necessarily understood. Wait, we were talking about this, and now we're talking about this. How did we jump from A to B? And you explain these links in the book very helpfully. So could we talk about one of them? Um, How Lakeview approaches feminism, and how this relates in their conception to other political issues to kind of this almost in some ways existential question of what is the role of the church? Absolutely. And I I lead with feminism in the book
0: because I think it's a a good kind of first example to introduce this concept of the imagined secular. Because when feminism came up, so did 27 other topics. Um, And so, you know, the lead pastor at Lakeview would talk about feminism. He would talk about it pretty openly in some of his Sunday sermons. Um, However, the first time I heard him mention it in church, he called it the F word, right? Um, But, you know, importantly, uh, uh, while that might not be some folks definition of the effort, uh, he, he brought it up so that people could talk about it and have space to debate it. Um, And and what I document in this book is that often the responses to feminism were quite messy. Um, There are kind of three camps that we can identify within these responses. So folks trying to kind of uh, make sense of an evangelical feminism, some folks seeking kind of a middle ground, um, enjoying kind of some uh, feminist fights. And here I really mean kind of like white women's feminist fights, um, while uh, kind of really holding on to a lot of church doctrine, and then others just rejecting feminism entirely. Um, But importantly, there was space for all of these conversations within the church. Um, And so after this Sunday sermon in which the lead pastor brought up the F word, right, and made a joke about feminism, um, I started asking uh, folks much more intently about their their thoughts on feminism. And when I did, individuals would bring up things like marriage, right, the gender division of labor. This is not surprising, given the focus of kind of many early feminist fights. Uh, But they would also bring up issues of sexism um, and fights for equality in the workplace for women. Um, However, in the same sentence, right, folks would talk about women's need to submit to their husbands in a godly marriage. So I really saw responses all over the place. But most importantly, uh, in addition to the varied responses, uh, were kind of the other things that would come up when I'd ask about feminism. And in a number of instances, and again, remember, this was 2016, right? We're talking almost eight years ago now. Folks were bringing up trans rights. Um, And I want to give you just a quick example of this. Um, So I was interviewing a a young man who was telling me all about the good parts of feminism as he saw it. So he told me about, you know, equal pay, women's ability to lead in the church. These were all things he enjoyed and supported. Um, But then he quickly said that there was a fine line between what he calls these good aspects of feminism And what he said were evangelicals being caring and loving and accepting. Um, And there was a a thin line between that and society becoming what he called too thin-skinned. And and he went on to say that feminism and social justice movements had contributed to society becoming too thin-skinned. And so I... Thought, huh, that's kind of an interesting quick turn. Um, it seemed disconnected uh, at first, but but what I tried to show in the book is it's, it's actually quite connected. And, and that's my point. Uh, you know, he said, I, I pushed him on this, right? I said, What do you mean um, society's becoming too thin skinned? How's that relate to feminism? And he said, Don't get me wrong, right? I'm accepting of trans rights and using bathrooms. But he said, This whole, did you just assume my gender thing is too far. And he told me a story about seeing uh, baristas at Starbucks with pronouns on their name tags, right? Um, and he said, while well, that's helpful um, because he's trying to learn. Um, he also gets frustrated when individuals get mad at him if they're misgendered. And so I asked him if that had happened to him, right? Did he have a situation or encounter in which a trans individual got mad at him for assuming their gender and and perhaps doing so incorrectly? And he said very quickly, no, no, that's never happened. So this is the imagined secular, right? I, I asked him a question about feminism. This quickly turned to a conversation about trans rights and fear and anger over a scenario that he imagined but had never actually experienced. And so what the responses to feminism um, in the book kind of highlight, I think are a few important things about current political beliefs uh, and related actions. So first, conversations are happening um, that we may find surprising, right? I did not enter the field thinking that I'd be hearing a, a lead pastor joking about feminism on a Sunday. And, and then in one scenario, you know, saying if, if you don't believe in feminism, this isn't your church. <laughs> um, but importantly, you know, second, there's a lot of messiness in these conversations. The church I was in was not unified in their beliefs. Um, and that's really important. And, and related to that, there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety as these external threats that they face feel bundled, right? If feminism brings up trans rights, um, then losing one battle may mean losing them all.
1: Hmm. Fascinating to see those linkages on a, Sort of similar way, um, but drawing on something you mentioned earlier, I, I want to ask about uh, white nationalism and race because you mentioned the word "ugly" earlier, and this really seems to kind of come up in a lot of these conversations. You're documenting the 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 fear of people in the church being seen as ugly, as being seen as not caring and compassionate and welcoming. Um, but of course, given where we're at in society and history. That's clearly a risk that they're worried about, and probably not for no reason. And it's a very tricky balance, given the history of the church and what it has or hasn't done in the past. So how does Lakeview avoid things, labels like ugly, avoid labels like racist, even though the church in a lot of ways is still pretty white, and in some ways is even white nationalist? Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for that question. I'm going to tell you another story. I can't help it as an
0: ethnographer, um, <laughs> give you an example here to, to help answer this question. Uh, so in the spring of, uh, 2016, uh, there is a, a lead pastor, um, The lead pastor at Lakeview invited another pastor, um, an older Black man, uh, to provide a guest sermon, and this is not uncommon. However, this this pastor happened to be from Ferguson, Missouri, Um, and this is uh, where Michael Brown had been shot and killed by police two years earlier, Um, and and his death, of course, kind of contributed to the groundswell um, of mobilization that became known as the Black Lives Matter Movement. Uh, and so the lead pastor at Lakeview spoke about, uh, this other pastor's visit for weeks. Um, it, and you know, this pastor is coming from a place that held such symbolic meaning at this moment in the U S. Um, and the lead pastor at Lakeview said that, yeah, you know, he's going to come and talk about the state of race in the country. And Miranda, I've got to tell you, I've never anticipated, um, a, a day in the field as much as I did this one. Um. And so the the Sunday morning of his visit, uh, the lead pastor um, got up at Lakeview, you know, introduced his friend who had flown in from Ferguson, and, and then his friend took the stage, and he immediately said, um, you know, after some kind of joking and introductions, he led and with, you know, he said, "This isn't PC, politically correct, right? This isn't PC, but I'm going to say it." Uh, to which a white woman uh, in the front row said very loudly, say it. And and this kind of like call and response behavior, that was something I'd never witnessed happening in other sermons. Uh, And so the pastor smiled and he said, I'm going to use a Mississippiism. He said, I ain't interested in Black Lives Matter, right? I'm interested in all lives matter. The devil sold us a lie. And at this time, uh, the congregation at Lakeview, they were probably in this first sermon of the day, maybe you know, five, 600 people in the audience, they all rose to a standing ovation. And that was the only instance that I witnessed a standing ovation during a sermon in the two and a half years that I was in this space. And there are some complicated things happening in this example. Um... But I think this moment captures uh, kind of the answer to your question that I'd like to provide. Um, And one that I I draw out through many other examples in the book. Um, You know, the congregation invited a Black man from Ferguson, Missouri to speak with them. Uh, And when they do that, they can say that they're doing the work, right? They can say that, yeah, we are having conversations about race. Uh, We are not the bad guys, to your point, right? We're not kind of the ugly ones um, in this fight. We aren't the problem. Um, and, And this sermon and many subsequent conversations that came after Align with church messaging around race uh, and solutions to racial inequality that, that are focused and centered on love. Uh, people need to love each other, right? And if everyone just loved each other, things would be okay. Uh, politics and political vi- divides are not the answer, right? Love is. Um, and this is totally kind of in line with white evangelical theology, one that focuses on individual successes and, and failures within the language of love, Um As both a goal and in some cases a solution for one's problems, uh, means that white evangelicals can kind of mask and ignore any structural issues um, in this focus on individualism and individual salvation. And this combination, right, that they're loving, um, and really importantly, that they see themselves as loving and believe that, um, and that a black man got on a plane and flew across the country and told them that they aren't racist, right, that's a really powerful combination of events and beliefs these were all, this is a highly orchestrated event, of course, <laughs> um, but but one that resulted in a congregation that can feel like they're doing the important work of love and loving thy neighbor while conveniently doing kind of little to nothing to address issues of racial inequality in a way that actually might affect positive change. Um, hmm. And what I, what I saw at Lakeview was a little different than what we often see on the news, right? Uh than what many imagine when we hear the phrase white Christian nationalism. Um these weren't the folks that were um you know, kind of wearing the MAGA hats at the the front lines of rallies in Virginia that made national news, right? They they were having conversations. <laughs> they, Quote unquote" conversations um, about race uh, in their church, and because of that, they felt like they were doing the right thing. Um, and Tressie McMillan Cottom argues she has this great line that that whiteness has the political power to be elastic, right? Whiteness can expand to to hold these overt displays of white supremacy, white Christian nationalism, uh, but but it can also hide behind kind of a welcoming invitation of a black male pastor from Ferguson, Missouri, right? Um, it can welcome in these threats of the imagined secular and and also simultaneously nullify them uh, through the same mechanisms that keeps it afloat, right? A language of love. Um, And those who benefit most from this elasticity uh, can indulge in this luxury of looking beyond their own actions to understand and justify the inequalities of the world in which they live.
1: Mm. And that's how that circle gets squared. Mm -hmm. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, you mentioned at the beginning that this whole book kind of came from an initial interest in sexuality and marriage. So we do obviously have to talk about that topic (laughs) as well. How then does Lakeview square the circle of saying that heterosexuality is still the main thing? Marriage is still the goal, but we actually have quite a lot of members of the church who are single and who are not necessarily getting married early in their 20s. Um, and ooh, we actually need to be welcoming and aware of homosexuality being not just societally accepted, but as you've said, right, legally Um, Validated as well How does that circle get squared?
0: (laughs) Yeah, this was a complicated one Um, As I mentioned Briefly earlier uh, Evangelical megachurches tend To kind of have and rely on Small groups, uh, so kind of More intimate spaces where Conversations about marriage, sexuality uh, Theology, you name it Can kind of happen Um, Spaces where kind of people feel um, Kind of safe and secure asking questions And engaging in debates in ways that Really, just can't uh, happen uh, during a Sunday sermon with hundreds, if not thousands, of people in attendance. Um, and and so, historically uh, in the U.S. Um, within white evangelical spaces, we've seen many of these small groups devoted to what kind of white evangelicals call SSA for shorthand, so same sex attraction. Uh, these are places where people could come and talk through uh, kind of these quote unquote sins and, and work through them and be held accountable. Um, you know, similarly, we had groups where men uh, can support each other in pledging abstinence until marriage, right? It was studying those groups that brought me to all of this work. Um, and so I paid very close attention to the, the small groups that existed during my time at Lakeview and, and to the conversations happening around um, sexuality in these spaces, because as you point out, right, the the ground shifted. Um, the same sex marriage was legalized. Um, we have kind of older millennials in the church who are getting married, um, much, much older than previous generations, uh, folks who are getting divorced who want to cohabitate, uh, who want to date, who have kind of questions about sex and sexuality that the church really hadn't needed to handle in the same way. Um, uh, and at the same volume before, um, And because of this, right, the lead pastor talked quite a bit about all these issues and he talked quite a bit about same sex marriage. And, um, you know, during one sermon as part of a a bigger uh, series on sex, he described, right, these what he called these seismic shifts uh, culturally when it comes to LGBTQ issues. And uh, I'm going to quote him here. He said, um, you know, uh, he said culture, and here he means you know, the U.S., folks in the U.S., uh, has placed those with non-affirming views on notice. Uh, he said, so if you have a non-affirming view of gay marriage, you are now an extremist culturally. Um, it, and so if this is a church, if Lakeview is now a church that's on notice for being extremist in its views... Um, And a church that's working really hard to, to get people to come in and sit with them on a Sunday morning to, who's really worried about not being kind of the quote unquote ugly ones in this fight in parts that they can get people to, to join them on Sunday mornings, then they need to fix this, right? They can't be seen as the extremists and they, they don't actually want to be. Um, and, And and so one thing that I saw them do to navigate this was to focus, to shift the focus um, from these myriad groups that existed around kind of sexual sins or same-sex marriage to, to focus on on heterosexual marriage instead. Um, they had one small group that was literally titled, stay married with an exclamation point in, in all caps. Um and I had never seen something like that before. Um, so they they really pivoted to start focusing much more on heterosexuality, right? Back to that point we discussed earlier about the importance of having a group to compare yourself against, right? If same-sex couples can now get married, uh, what does that mean for kind of heterosexual couples in the church, right? Are, are their marriages still sacred? Um, and if people are staying single longer, and God forbid, if younger people in the church are you know starting to ask more questions about premarital sex, or remarriage or cohabitation, right? What does this uh, institution of marriage we've been protecting mean and need to look like going forward? Um, so so to answer your question in part, they've shifted their focus um, and they've also shifted their language around conversations about same-sex marriage um, and attraction when they do talk about it. Um, in one of my more kind of surprising moments in the field, uh, the lead pastor at Lakeview said he wanted to throw out the logic of hate the sin, love the sinner. Um, he said, you know, what if instead we acknowledge that everyone's a little bit broken, everyone is struggling. Um, and he said, can we change it to this, right? Can we say, hate my own sin and love others? Can we do that one instead? So no more love the sinner, hate the sin. He said, that's kind of become cliche. How about let's, you know, hate my own sin and love others. And he said, are we cool with that one instead? And, you know, a, a lot of people are not cool with that one instead. Um, in, smoth, in both kind of small groups and individual interviews, right? People debated this sermon at length. Um, they they verbally worked through what it might mean to love someone who is LGBTQ, um, right? And again, importantly, the church is very intentionally creating space for these conversations. However, they were not encouraging a change in beliefs. Um, And so this is kind of another example of how the church is working on their imaging um, and how at the same time, inequalities can persist in more subtle ways, Um, right? Because if we think of this narrative of hate my own sin and love others, we think maybe perhaps it can invoke uh, some feelings of empathy, um, which for some it probably did. But but as I document in the book, it can also be used to put forth a logic of overcoming all sins, right? That, that is, if we're all of a sudden treating everyone's sexual sins as the same, if someone can overcome a pornography addiction, uh, someone else can overcome same-sex attraction, And so these struggles can kind of be understood as the same, as as on equal ground, and difference is erased. And and so then emerges kind of a new logic for dismissing support for uh, same-sex relationships and marriage. But of course, right, Miranda, we know this, that the struggles are, and her struggles is in scare quotes, are are different, right? In the same sermon that I just gave that example from, um, the pastor, lead pastor also said, you know, he said for gay identifying individuals, he said, sexuality might feel like, you know, quote, something that is the air you breathe. Um, and he said, you know, but I'd argue it's not who you are. It's part of who you are, like your favorite color is part of who you are. Right. But people are not usually discriminated against for loving the color blue or green. And, and so in minimizing these differences, the church can work to kind of fold everyone into the same battles, uh, a pure welcoming in that regard, right? Like we're all in this fight together. Um, but then really ig- ignore the work required to address homophobia as both a historical and kind of contemporary pillar of the church. Um, and likening sexual desire and identity to a favorite color, of course, that cannot undo the harm that the institution has perpetuated for generations
1: in the US. Hmm. In some ways, almost making it worse in some senses Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah which which is really interesting um to to see and to to think about so thank you for taking us through how the church thinks about homosexuality and tries to square that circle i i wonder if i can ask you about i guess in some ways a behind the scenes aspect of the book but it is Literally in the book. Granted, it is an appendix, which is why I'm sort of like, mm, is it in the book? Is it behind the scenes? <laughs> um, but I wonder if, given you were there two and a half years, right? You were talking about, as you said, these topics that are very emotional, have a lot of fear, um, and trying to make sense of things that, on the face of it, I'm sure the first time you heard a lot of them, you're like, hang on, wait, what? How did that get from here to there? Like, there's mm-hmm. a lot to process and get through, and you know, the whole Sunday morning of it all, like it's your weekend, you know, (laughs) it's not office hours. So there's a lot going on here from just trying to get this information and make sense of it. And of course, that's true for pretty much all ethnography, but we don't always talk about that. Mm -hmm. Um, And we don't always talk about that in our actual publications. So can you tell us a bit about what Appendix A is in the book, um, kind of why it's there, what you're doing with it, um, and, and maybe why it's important that it's there? Absolutely. I, I really appreciate this question.
0: Um, I I wanted to have a space in the book where I could reflect more fully on my own position in the field um, as a woman, as a non-religious woman, and as a queer woman. And um you know, I, sometimes, uh, I was met with surprise, you know, when I discussed this work, as you said, right, this wasn't office hours, right. I was, I was spending my weekends doing this. Um, and my decision to spend two and a half years in an evangelical megachurch often also came with assumptions, right. About my own religious beliefs. And, And so I wanted to discuss uh, in detail kind of what it meant for me to be in this space as a non-religious woman, as someone who shares little to nothing in common with the folks I spent so much time with. Um, I I also wanted to discuss the many methodological decisions I made before going into the field and then often uh, frequently kind of on the spot um, that allowed me to both gain and retain access to this community. uh, Importantly, to build trust Among its members, and and to be taken seriously as a researcher in that space, and and also importantly, to take the folks I spent this much time with seriously. Um, You know, these were individuals who let me spend two and a half years with them, learning from them. Um, And and while I I fundamentally disagree with how they understand their place in the world and the values they hold, um, I I need to honor the kind of researcher participant relationship. Um, And I want to explain it to others. in an effort to help uh, show how this book happened, um, and also with the hope of a bit of a how-to for others doing similar ethnographic work. Um, before I entered the field, I, I combed kind of uh, every methodological appendix and all of my favorite ethnographies that I could get my hands on, and, and that was so, so helpful, and, um, and I wanted to add to that as well.
1: I think that that's incredibly important um, and, and very helpful, uh, is the, having had a similar relationship with kind of, you know, scouring the footnotes, scouring the appendices. like How do you actually do this? Um, so thank you for speaking to that a bit. Um, if I could ask a genuinely behind the scenes question as my penultimate one, I certainly found a lot of reading this book is like, oh, OK, wouldn't have expected someone to say that. Interesting. <laughs> You obviously were so embedded in this. Is there anything during the research or writing of this that especially surprised you that you could share with us?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, I think um, I, I, I spent... You know, t- let's see. My my first project spanned four years, and I was with a group of men who was talking very openly about sex and sexuality and and their decision making around that. And so, I think that helped um, uh, uh, kind of diffuse the the surprise factor for me when I went back to the field. Um, but with that said, um, I. I mean, I was genuinely surprised um, with almost kind of every aspect of the book I've discussed with you today. Um, And that was kind of the content of the conversations that individuals were having, right? I was surprised that folks were talking and, and debating kind of aspects of feminism and trans rights. I was shocked that the church flew, um, you know, a black male pastor from Ferguson, Missouri out to speak with them. I was floored at the ways in which uh, they were finding kind of a new language and workarounds to talk about same sex desire. Um, and and I, I think in the end, that ended up being one of the most important parts of the book for me, right? We're, we're often so quick, uh, as I mentioned, kind of to picture the like MAGA hat wearing man who's screaming at the front lines of a rally Virginia, right? Uh, it's January, right? The individuals who stormed the U S Capitol building in January, 2021. Um, and what I hope this book suggests and, and shows is that we really need to pay more attention, uh, to the folks who are sitting kind of quietly in church among these coastal elites in the Pacific Northwest, um, who also voted for a politician to kind of do this ugly work for them, right? They weren't, um, out at these rallies. They weren't, uh, Trump's most fervent, uh, supporters um- but, but they did still vote for him. And, and all these individuals um, kind of do end up bearing the same reflection at the end of the, the day, though one is often given less attention. And I think especially as we enter another election year in the US, we really need to pay close attention to these groups uh, who are still fueling this kind of conservative religious movement in the US, uh, but that we're not paying as much attention to. And, um, and so I, I, I hope I did the job of kind of turning my own continued surprise at these conversations and the content of these conversations uh, into that overall argument.
1: Mm. What a fabulous way as well to end our discussion and bring (laughs) so many threads together. Um, I do however have one final question if you'll allow it. Uh, The book is obviously available. Uh, Anyone who wants to understand for example this coming election by looking at this community would probably do well to go pick it up. Uh, but that means it's also off your desk. Is there anything you might be working on now or next, whether or not it's a book, whether or not it's on this topic that you'd like to preview?
0: Oh, yes, that's a fun one. Um, I have been working on a, a theoretical piece about how heterosexuality is a key feature of organization. So here kind of playing on Victor Ray's work for those who are familiar, his really grand breaking piece on uh, racialized organizations. Uh, We talk a lot about gender organizations uh, we now talk uh, more about racialized organizations as we should be but but much less so about sexuality um, and so I'm working with my kind of longtime co-author CJ Pasco on this she's been documenting these themes in her work in schools I've been doing the same in churches and and we've been working to bring that data together to better inform our theoretical frameworks uh, regarding how kind of organizations reinforce heterosexuality with the hopes and part of of taking the language of uh, sexual and gender inequality kind of out of the individual and interactional level where it's often stuck.
1: Well, having had the pleasure of interviewing CJ about her book and her work in schools and now yours in churches, uh, that is a very thrilling thing to know is coming. (laughs) So thank you for that preview. And of course, um, for any listeners who want to read the book we've been talking about, again, the title is The Holy Vote, Inequality and Anxiety Among White Evangelicals, published by University of California Press. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. Thanks so much for having me.